This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. Philanthropies can do things the government can't do. I say to our science program officers, go take risk. Failure's allowed. Absolutely. Try it out. If you fail twice and three other times you hit home runs, that's a winner. Don't worry about it. That's Bob Kahn, who for the last dozen years has headed the Kavli Foundation overseeing the funding of basic research to the tune of 35 to $40 million a year. He's also helped organize a concerted effort by other philanthropies to fund research that is on the cutting edge of the possible, probes into the unknown that may be too risky for government funding. This is so great to be talking with you today because I've had a question I've wanted to ask you for a while now. I may be wrong about the way I see it, but it seems to me in science and technology. There are basically two ways of looking at it. One is to take what we know and make something out of it, like a coffee machine or a rocket ship. That's engineering, basically, I guess. And then there's trying to learn more about what we already know and see if we can push that boundary further. And I think that's basic research. And I, th- I want, my question is, you seem to have covered both of those fields really extensively. Your early education and work was in engineering, and you're a champion at promoting basic research. Was there a time when you switched over, or were you always engaged with both feet? Well, I think I was always engaged with both feet, but there is engagement and there is love. And what I found was that I came in college to more and more love science more than I loved engineering, even though I did both probably all my life. It was just the core ability to understand more than the ability to take understanding and translate it. But I always, the love was always with, why is it like this and not like that? Isn't that interesting? That's such a basic question. Yeah. The humblest of us can do it. And I, 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 by that, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm so curious about how things got the way they are. Yeah. And that seems to be the same question that deeply thinking research scientists have, only they go ahead and actually figure out how things got the way they are. What, what's at the core of it? Yes, yes. It seems to me you devote full time pretty much to making sure that curiosity-driven science is done. I wonder if the term basic science or basic research is dull to some people. You know, when they first hear it, they may think, they may think, oh, basic, let's get to the exciting stuff. (laughs) There, I think, are two broad categories that all of science falls into. You use the word curiosity-driven. 
I don't like that so much because I could hear that. I could hear someone listening to that and going, oh, those aphids. All they do is, you know, they just want to think about things that they care about. They're not interested in my life or, you know, maybe this basic science doesn't matter. But if one says what you mean by curiosity driven is we just need to understand the world around us. We're curious beings by nature. We want to understand. Why do we look at the sky? We want to understand. We're not going to do much with the sky, particularly the far, far away sky. So that's science in order to understand the world around us. There's also an equally important and very basic role of science in trying to solve a problem. So a famous one in communications that's underpinning everything you and I have in front of us to let us talk like we are, you know, was the transistor, the invention, the discovery. It's really both an invention in an Edisonian sense, but also a scientific discovery in a science sense. And the drive there was to get away from vacuum tubes. I heard your conversation with Raphael Reif. He used the same example, but it doesn't matter. Point was, the people who discovered the transistor that underpins everything in today's economy wanted to try to find a way to communicate better electronically. And they discovered this thing nobody had ever thought about, and they won the Nobel Prize for it. So people do basic work to understand how to make something better, like Pasteur did when he said, open the doors and let the patients out on the balcony and fresh air. Maybe there's a germ theory of illness, germs, right? There's an idea, open the doors and you go to visit his Hospital is still there in Paris. And you see these French doors. I mean, they're called French doors for a reason. <laughs> so that's interesting. That You're broadening my perspective here because I do think of it as curiosity-driven. But sometimes it's to solve a problem, but you don't right. know how you're going to solve it. In the course of trying to solve it, you discover something that's never been known to anybody before. Right. What you've ended up doing in trying to solve the problem is you've asked the question for which at the moment there is no answer. Your job is to discover what it is in the physical world, science, chemistry, biology, physics, which we haven't ever known before. Right. And looking for the solution and not knowing what the answer will be, where it's going to take you, is a little bit like being driven purely by curiosity, but it's a little closer to the use, the end use of the discovery. Right. Because you're working from the notion that I got to find a solution to this use-oriented problem. The inspiration is a little different. Because you are trying to solve a problem, in Pasteur's case, it was bacterial diseases, and he wanted to try to get rid of people who were coming in with bacterially-based diseases. The transistor, they needed to somehow figure out how they could do all this information processing with bits and 
ones and zeros and dots and bop, da da and yet not consume any power or hardly consume any power. How were you going to do that? All we had were vacuum tubes. And they said, well, it's probably got to be in a solid state. It probably has to have this property or that property. And so you begin to ask yourself, well, what kind of properties am I looking for for the thing that will give me the solution I want? And then things start to pop in your mind, and then you try this, and it doesn't work, and you try that, it doesn't work. But sometimes uh, serendipity, uh, like penicillin, right? You go away overnight, you come back, and all the bacteria in your Petri dish are dead. What happened? Penicillin. I mean, that was how Fleming... So sometimes the surprise is totally unexpected. And you walk in and it's sitting there before your eyes. You are devoting so much of your time to promoting basic research with the Codley Foundation, which you're now about to retire from. How many years have you run it? End of this year will be uh, 12. And, and I know how, how much effort you devote to bringing science to the public because you've been so important to the Center for Communicating Science. And, and many other areas. But what, how, how has the Copley Foundation promoted basic research with the institutes? How many, you have institutes all over the world. How many do you have? 20. Wow. In fact, we're about to announce a new one. All doing basic research. Yes, we have wonderful resources left by Fred Cavley, after whom, of course, the foundation is named. And we have about a $600 million endowment, so we spend about 35 to $40 million a year. If you're going to be effective, you need to figure out what areas you might be able to move the needle in science with the resources you do have. We can't throw infinite money at any problem. And so one of the things we had to do, Alan, which I think has been a source of, of great, of why we've had the success we've had, is we've had to focus. We've had to pick areas that we believe will continue to yield um, discoveries that will make an enormous difference to humanity. So the ones we picked are the brain, neuroscience. The brain is always going to be with us as long as we are human. And it is still in its infancy with respect to our, you know, full understanding. We pick nanoscience. It's really the science at the scale of atoms and molecules, ranges all the way to biology, physics, chemistry, quantum computing, all that stuff atoms and molecules. And then, you know, the biggest out there, the universe. How did it start? Where did it come from? Why does it look the way it is? What are the puzzles? And we're still discovering puzzles in astrophysics. The world is everything that we can see, and then a lot of things that at the moment we still don't see, like dark matter, and maybe dark energy. So the puzzles are enormous in those three fields, and those are the fields which we have primarily focused on.
You know, I can picture, I'm thinking of the, the need that many people have to, before they can embrace basic science, they want to know a little bit more about how it's going to do them any good. Yes. And I can see nanoscience and neuroscience leading to the bet, a better coffee pot for the mind. You know, some, <laughs> okay. some, kind, of, some kind of end result that will be useful. Right. I'm right. wondering if astrophysics, <clears throat> as, is astrophysics more satisfying our curiosity? Has it, has it yet given us something more than understanding. By the way, I don't think that's a bad thing. I just want to know more about this stuff, but I'm wondering how it's being received. Well, I think it's uh, just by the nature of your question, I'm going to interpret it as being somewhat misunderstood. Good. And what I mean by that is, uh, oh, you're looking up at the sky, you're just diddling around trying to understand the A or B, but what are we going to do with the sky? I mean, the stars are hundreds of millions of light years away. What are we going to do? The remarkable part of astronomy is technology development, uh, information technology and computers. Mm. So the sensors that we need to see the sky in all its glory, from the visible that you and I see and all people see, that's a very narrow part of all of the light that's out there. We have x-rays. We don't see them, but we know they're there. We have gamma rays. We don't see them, but we know they're there, and so on. So all of what we have needed over the years to see the sky and understand the universe has produced technology that has enormous uses on an everyday basis. We have something called adaptive optics, and that sounds funny. What is it? Well, light comes through the atmosphere, and if you sit on the ground and you got convection and clouds and this and that, you have to correct for all that stuff. That's why sometimes we put satellites up so we get above the atmosphere and there's no problem. But we figured out with another invention from physics, curiosity-driven, but lasers, we can send a laser beam up through the atmosphere, watch it reflect back down, and correct for everything along the path that laser beam has taken. And so now we can take the light from a star and correct it through our own atmosphere, collect it in a telescope on, on the ground. But that has enormous military applications. It underpins uh, all of our satellite communications, for everyday things, such as the kind of conversation you and I are having at two ends of the country. Besides the institutes, how else are you devoting your resources and th thinking in the Kavli Foundation to basic science? Right. Well, beyond the basic science, I would say there's several things. One is we care enormously about public understanding and public appreciation of science. And so we spend about 20% of our resources on programs like the ones that you uh, have been so keen about and are involved in to really help scientists become better communicators with the public, which I know has been a passion of yours, 
but to help many others to work with museums who are, more people go, take their kids to museums than they take them to baseball, football, and hockey games. Really? Yes. So if we can help them uh, with some front-end amplification of their messaging at the front end, they become the megaphone out to the larger public about why science matters. How does the Connolly Prize play into that? So that's the in-between, the support of the people doing the science and getting out the information so the public better understands it. So a third element that Fred Cavley himself felt very strongly about was we should have a prize. He liked to call the Copley Prize the science prize for the 21st century. And that was because of neuroscience, nanoscience, and astronomy and cosmology. But really what it amounts to is, look, these uh, discoveries really transform society. So rewarding and recognizing great scientific work is important. And then it becomes a platform like the Nobel Prize is and other prizes for scientists to be able to have some credibility, street creds. Growing up in Brooklyn, we, you needed street creds. You get your street credibility, right? Where you can go out and maybe speak with some credibility about science and the public and how to make the world better. The Cavalier Prize, we do a lot of programs built around the laureates who win the Cavalier Prize and ask them to participate in things and not just accept the money and the gold medal and be happy, but start to talk more about science with the public. And we utilize them and they're, they're wonderful and they love doing it. And you were instrumental in organizing other philanthropies how does that work? So what you're talking about is a group called the Science Philanthropy Alliance. It just crossed its fifth anniversary. We're in our sixth full operating year. We started in really functionally in 2014-15 with six foundations. And today we're 35. All committed to supporting basic science. And uh, the, the reasons they exist is to actually help people who have made great wealth give back. We have a tradition in the country, I think, going back to Carnegie as maybe the symbol, right? In the first Gilded Age, his famous paraphrasing comment was, if you die with all your wealth, you've died poor. And he gave all his funds away in his lifetime. Now, he formed foundations, which then continue. We are living in an age of that kind. Today, uh, we mint between 800 and 900 new billionaires every year. And we have this great tradition. It really is a cultural tradition in America of giving back. So the idea was, here's this pipeline of growing wealth. And so I said, who will speak for science to the new wealth? And who will make the case about the importance of science to society? They've got the money. They have a cultural interest in doing it. You see the Gates Buffett pledge and you see many other things. But there was no group who could be a resource to people of wealth.
who wanted to support science. And that's the original idea of the Science Philanthropy Alliance. So we don't want other people's money. None of the members want other people's money. What we want to be there is to help others who are new to large wealth think about how to support science and why to support science. And the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, is an example. They've committed $3 billion over a decade to developing tools to advance the biological and medical sciences. And it's already in its third or fourth year. And the Alliance had a large influence on their thinking. Because the first idea was, I want to solve a disease. It's natural. And as they listened to uh, the leaders at the Alliance, and we have some wonderful consultants, including a number of Nobel Prize winners, and they talked with people, they came to realize we could enable more discovery if we drive tool development, just like I said about astronomy. It's also true in biology and health. And so we're now 35 members. Um, their endowments, meaning the money they have, they spend about 5% of it a year, I think is almost $140 billion now. How does that match up? with what the government spends on similar research. So that's the money in the endowments. It's like in the bank account. And they spend about 5% of that a year. So let's use $100 billion for a round number. Then 5% would be $5 billion a year. They don't spend it all on science, Alan. So uh, maybe it's only $2 billion or $3 billion. The government, for basic science spends about eight times that. They spend 35 to 40 billion a year on basic science, and they spend another 35 or 40 billion a year on applied science, technology, engineering. Is that coming down or is it staying steady? The issue is it's steady. It has come down some, but it is not increasing. We have in the United States the ability to lead the world, not win, but lead the world scientifically, because we have resources nobody else has. We have very large government spending. True, it's constrained. It's not going to go up much every year, but I just talked about $70 billion a year. But we have a growing pipeline of philanthropic giving to science. And philanthropies can do things the government can't do. We can take a lot more risk. We can support people before their scientific ideas might be quite ready for prime time. So they might not get approval for a grant by the government, but Kavli might do it, or the Moore Foundation might do it, or another foundation, the Sloan Foundation might do it. And so philanthropy the way I look at it, is the ability to front-end discovery. It's almost like venture capital and business. It's risk capital, only it's about ideas. It's about understanding. And we can take risk and support things before they're fully developed. And then when a great idea is actually demonstrated, they can go to the government and get a heck of a lot more money to do the rest of what is needed. I've read some complaints from scientists that seem to say that 
it's much easier to get funding for an idea that doesn't push anything too far forward because they don't want to leave the safety of what's already known. And the risk seems to be more noticed when it's an idea that's a little bit on the horizon. And so are you able to shorten that distance? Are you able to help scientists be a little riskier with their with their speculations and their hypotheses? That's exactly what I'm saying. That is, if you're in a government agency, and the government agencies do try to take risk, they know they have to do it. But it's not easy. You have too many uh, grants that a grant maker has made, and it doesn't turn out good. You know, you'll get like Proxmire, he'll give you some crazy award for failure and why are you looking at the fruit fly, which, you know, fruit flies have told us an enormous amount about biology. So we, as private foundations, don't face that problem. I say to our science program officers, go take risk. Failure's allowed. Absolutely. Try it out. If you fail twice and three other times you hit home runs, that's a winner. Don't worry about it. That's very hard for a large bureaucracy like a government agency to do throughout its organization. But foundations are not that large. And so you can have a different attitudinal approach. And we do. You know what it makes me think? is because the scientists coming in with an idea that's a little different from what's already known, the way to convince you or others who could fund that scientist is to be able to explain it really well. Yes. <laughs> but even if you could explain it really well, if you don't have data, if it's just an idea right now and you need $100,000 to do a few experiments to see if there's a pony in this idea, where are you going to get the money? So um, what we do, we don't actually make grants in these institutes that I told you we have. We transfer our wealth to them. We give them 10 and then another five, ultimately we give them about $20 million. They often match that, so 40 million a year. So we have a Neuroscience Institute at Yale. Its current endowment for the Kavli Institute is $40 million. It throws off $2 million a year. And we say, we don't have any say in what you do with it. You, Yale, scientists, you decide what are your best and brightest ideas, and use those funds to fund those ideas, even if they're not ready for prime time in the government. And that has proven to be enormously powerful. And it, I picked on Yale, but I could pick on the other 19, and it's a similar story. It's wonderful yeah. you've been able to do that in relatively short time. It has been quite a ride. Uh, the first decade was uh, sort of lay the foundations, and the second decade was uh, rise up to, I like to say, rise up to greatness or rise up to being really impactful. And, uh, you know, this coming decade is going to be equally exciting. 
Well, before we close, and I'm sorry we have to close because I love talking with you, Bob. The question came up at the beginning of our conversation. What is it that could possibly excite the average person about basic research? What do you think it is? Well, that's a hard question. I remember being asked, uh, in fact, one time by you, you know, don't we need a Sputnik moment, uh, some kind of event, and then we're going to go to the moon. And that captures everybody's imagination. And I haven't figured this out. I'll be straightforward. What I believe we have to somehow do is to make certain people appreciate, if you like, When they go to the doctor or they go to the hospital in an emergency and they go in and get an X-ray, an MRI, this kind of diagnostic and that kind of diagnostic, it didn't just show up in the hospital. Everything in the hospital and your doctor's office was at one time totally unknown. Totally unknown. And various scientific advances led to people then say, oh, if I know this, I can make that application, what we were talking about earlier. And now we live on average to 80, 85 in the United States. They're approaching 90 on average for women in Japan. A hundred years ago, we were living less than 50 years on average. So we've doubled the average lifespan. And science, for the most part, is the largest reason we live longer, we live healthier, we live better, on average. Well, thanks to you, I plan to live to my 120th birthday, and we can have a piece of cake together. Bob, it's (laughs) been great talking with you. Thank you so much. Uh, You're most welcome, Alan. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Bob Kahn will be retiring at year's end after 12 years of guiding the Codley Foundation through a great expansion of both its investment in science and its programs to improve the public understanding of the value of basic research. As the foundation celebrates its 20th year, Bob will be succeeded as president by Dr. Cynthia Friend, currently professor of chemistry at Harvard University. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. 
And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Rebecca Blank, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin, about the special role that public universities like hers play in fostering a passion for science among young women and men who may themselves not realize their potential. I'm the flagship university in the state of Wisconsin, and I do everything I can to get the top students from all over the state. You know, I'm as interested in recruiting the great kids growing up on dairy farms um, in the northern and western part of the state, as I am from recruiting people both in the inner city and in the suburbs of Milwaukee. The result is, you know, a lot of students who grow up in small town or lower income families find their life transformed by coming to a university and discovering things about themselves and about the possibilities out there in the world that they simply didn't know. Chancellor Rebecca Blank, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>